You're listening to On the Brink, a podcast that brings you up-and-coming country music artists. We expressly prohibit the reproduction of any parts of the podcast without our written consent. Please send your request via onthebrinkpodcast.com, where you can also sign up for updates. Please also support our sister site, stonecoldcountry.net. We sincerely thank you for listening and congratulate you on your expanding music library. Santa here. Very few things can help you de-stress the way that golfing can. Here are a couple of tips that can help you improve your swing. And then don't forget to click on the link in the podcast notes for more tips and a great deal. Well, the most important uh, thing in a golf swing to me is the movement of the lower body from the top of the swing. And if you don't mind, I'll demonstrate. First off, you start down below with your knees and your hips. At the top of the swing, you move the lower part of your body, not your shoulders, the lower part of your body, letting your arms and hands follow, bringing you into position to hit. But this is the first movement there. Then you release at the bottom. Most people do it entirely opposite. They rotate their shoulders first instead of their lower body. As a result, they come across the ball and hit the outside of the ball instead of the back of it. For more great golfing tips like the one that you just heard, click the link in the podcast notes section, or you can go on to stonecoldcountry.net and look for September's On the Brink podcast post. We're the ladies of Stone Cold Country. <laughs> I'm near San Antonio, so that's easy to relate to, Santa Ana. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Oh, so hey, are you living in Texas now? Yes, ma'am. I moved here a year and a half ago. And you know, good timing too. Um, I mean, I just feel like, um, I'm just, I was such a huge fan of, of Billy Joe and everything. And, and I just, I don't know. I just feel like there's something that is missing now. Well, I mean, um, the nice thing about Texas is there are honey holes everywhere and the talent is fresh. Um, there's a, a few imitators out there and stuff, but there's so much raw talent out here. And uh, I reached out to the head of ASCAP today to, to let them know that, in my opinion, the Hill Country of Texas is the new 1990s all over again. It's all these guys want to write and record is real country, not so much just copycat 1990s country, but they want real country. They don't want to do anything that resembles bro or anything like that. It's really refreshing. I, I couldn't agree with you more. It, it's like... Um... We do a, a Texas six pack in our radio show, and it's just six brand spanking new songs from Texas area artists. And I have to, you know, agree with you 100%, Bernie. It's just the stuff that's coming out of, you know, some areas of Texas now. <laughs> so and what's the bad thing is they'll take a really talented act from Texas, like a Pat Green or Eli Young or, mm-hmm. or Cody Johnson, and, and they'll take them to Nashville and then they'll saturate them with originally good songs and then slowly but surely they start tainting them with songs that that artists should never be recording that are closer to the bro and they'll tell them you have to record these to to hang on to to build a broader fan base and they don't need a broader fan base i mean the the greatest artist of country music of all time never wandered from their sound ever and the four biggest artists of all time of our generation, never changed producers. Wow, that I didn't know. That I did not know. Kenny so, Chesney, Alan Jackson, Garth Brooks, and George Strait, for the most part, always had the same producers. Oh my gosh, no, I did not know that. And I, I love all the people you just mentioned. Now, I've never understood that. Why do they, um, you know, sign people that they love their music? Because obviously, why would you sign an artist if you didn't think that artist you know, has something going on that's special, right? And then you want to change them. I just, I can't wrap my head around that ever. Well, um, 1985, I was writing at MCA Music and they signed a new guy from Texas. And he was really fresh, had some really meaty materials and, and Don Schlitz was writing there. So it was kind of like a Don Schlitz with a Texas feel. And uh, country music just wasn't very popular yet. It was still in the the diamonds in the stream type thing and Lee Greenwood was more pop and we had all these other actions that were kind of pop. And mm-hmm. it wasn't until Randy Travis hit that guys like me 
started getting success as a, as a country writer because I, I wouldn't fall into the want to write a pop song type thing. And that guy's name was Robert Earl Keen. Oh. And Robert, Robert Earl moved back to Texas in 86. <laughs> and uh, he, he never changed. He just wrote no. along the lines of a Joe Ely, uh, Guy Clark, and, and he mm-hmm. found his niche. Sounds. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. And look, yeah. Stapleton, I mean, Stapleton struggled out there. The steel drivers weren't a household name or anything like that. Mm-hmm. And he just stayed the course. And it was because uh, people were sick and tired of the bro and they weren't sick and tired. They just wanted something else. So guys like Jason Isabel, Sturgill Simpson and J- Jamie Johnson were plowing the way for Chris Stapleton mm-hmm. and Stapleton hit and there was no, no turning back the floodgates of his fans. Yeah. It's funny. Cause um, our, um, our core audience is like all over the place in terms of demographics. So we have like the Gen Z's and Gen Y's thanks to Anna, who's just like in her early 20s. And then you have, you know, millennials and Gen Xers, which I'm a part of, you know. And so a lot of our people didn't even know <laughs> that Tennessee whiskey um, was originally recorded like uh, many moons ago. <laughs> they like they had never heard it before they heard Chris do it. You know, so I, I I just thought that was real funny. You know, so it, I, used it kind of- with, I used to do shows with Linda Hargrove, and Linda would play it. You know, and her version was incredible. You know, and and Dean Dillon was I think a nineteen year old kid when her when him and Hargrove got together to write that, and um, the first person recorded was was uh, David Allen Coe, and then George I, Jones. Wow! Wow! Isn't that something, huh? Wow. And if it hadn't been Justin Timberlake, the song wouldn't have been such a big hit. So it took a pop artist to make that a big event because he sang it with him on the on the CMA Awards. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And that's that'll go down in history, you know. I was just like Well that night the two biggest country songs that were performed, just so you know the state of country music, was sung by Justin Timberlake, a pop artist, <laughs> and Chris Davidson, and Cheryl Crow and Kid Rock. Wow. Yeah, your picture, your picture was the most country song played that night, next to Tennessee okay. Wish. Everything else was bro, pop stuff. That's just amazing. Well, it hey, made the country artists look stupid. It really did. Well, yeah, I mean, you know. <laughs> well, you've had an enviable career, you know, in the industry. I mean, good lord, um, you've had so much success, you know, both as, as a songwriter, but as a performer as well. And you're a mentor and you're an author. I mean, you've done, I think you've done what, you know, most people would love to do. You actually went out and did it, you know, and you're still doing it, which is amazing. And uh, I just kind of would like to know how everything got started for you. I mean, tell us how everything kind of, you know, uh, got going for you. Well, you know, I do have a book. I'm an author. It's called Honky Tonk Angels. Yes. And the, book, the book is about the synergy, the how the cosmic world spins upside down, um, sometimes in your favor and sometimes in what not doesn't seem like your favor, but is used to put you where you're supposed to be, uh, which happens a lot with God. But, well, I'm a person of faith, and I totally believe that. I 100% believe that. The book shows you several failures of, of several people in the music business. And had they not had those failures, they would not have become the successful people they are. Uh, um, a guy named Jeff Stevens had a group called Jeff Stevens and the Bullets. Keith Stiegel produced them, major producer. He cut two or three of my songs and couldn't get arrested on radio. Lost his record deal, became a writer, wrote Carrying Your Love and I Get Carried Your Way, and uh, became a hit writer. The country music changed, and he couldn't get a cut. And a friend of his brought him a new artist named Luke Bryant to cut sides on, and now he's producing Luke Bryant. So, um, you know, you go from failure to success and failure to success. Um, Jim Jim Collins uh, uh, was a su- successful Texas artist. Got signed to Arista Records. Couldn't have, couldn't buy a hit. Got dropped by the label. But just before he moved back to Texas, he wrote uh, um, the good stuff. Kenny Chen, mm. and would go on to write Big Green Tractor, and she thinks my tractor's sexy, and several, several other artists that lost their record deals became hit writers, and several writers couldn't get arrested and became artists. 
you know. So uh, it's really neat. Like Luke Bryan, uh, he wrote Good Directions, and Good Directions got him a record deal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. so, I don't know, in, in my case, uh, I had a band in Colorado, and we toured all over the Western Slope, Wyoming, Montana, Colorado. And somewhere in the process, I got an offer from a group in 77 to record at their place in South Carolina and, and tour with them. And they were called Marshall Tucker. And uh, <laughs> Never heard of them. <laughs> yeah, so I was ready to go to, to, to Spartanburg and record and tour with Marshall Tucker, which would have been awesome. But then I got a, a letter in the mail, an interesting letter from a guy named Robert Byrne, and it had an airplane ticket in it. And it had a date, like, this is when you're coming. And uh, he checked He checked with my booking agent to see when I was available, and he bought me a plane ticket. So I flew down to Muscle Shoals, Alabama, to meet somebody I didn't know who had enough faith in me to buy me a plane ticket. And uh, he'd heard a song of mine that a friend of his who went to high school would send him on a cassette. And uh, so I flew to Muscle Shoals, Alabama, and I, I thought, boy, this is podunk down here. I had no history of what was taking place in Muscle Shoals, Alabama. And a big redheaded kid in green overalls picked me up at the airport. He was 18 years old, and his name was Mac McAnally. Oh, my God. And, and so Mac and Robert produced me. And uh, the songs we cut down there uh, helped open up doors for me in, in Nashville. Not to mention that that session down there, I've never heard music like that. And I said, these guys are great. And Robert said, well, they're the Swampers. And I thought, who are the Swampers? Mm-hmm. And I didn't know. And then I one day listen to the radio I made the connection but Barry Beckett was my first piano player Barry Beckett oh my gosh Barry produced Kodachrome and old time rock and roll um, of course he's part of the Swampers mm-hmm. uh, but my first session in Nashville Barry Beckett was on it and all my musicians were from Muscle Shoals and mm-hmm. Garth and I were friends and I played with a demo of mine and he wanted to know who was on the demo and he's never made a record without those guys it was wow. Milton Sledge and, and, and Mike Chapman and all those guys, John Willis. And, but so uh, I got a look-see at, a, at Warner Brothers Music with Bob Montgomery. Uh, and I got a look-see with Jerry Crutchfield at MCA Music. And interesting side note, my first co-writer ever in Nashville was a guy named Gary Morris. Gary Morris? Gary Morris and uh, Mark Gray. And they were smoking dope. And I couldn't do dope. And I got a contact buzz and I walked out of there and I tried to clear my head and I walked down the street to MCA music and I walked in and I met Dave Loggins at the front door and uh, Don Schlitz down the lobby and they were both smoking cigarettes and Crutchfield came down, said hello, took me back and introduced to Russell Smith from the Amazing Were the Maces and we sat down and wrote and Russell lit a joint and, uh, I went home that night realizing I was never going to last in Nashville because I didn't smoke dope. So uh, <laughs> oh, that was my, my start was, was with MCA Music. And uh, the first song I wrote with Russell Smith, we got cut within a week by Bobby Bear. Bobby and Bear. Then, and then uh, I wrote a song by myself uh, at the laundromat one night without a guitar. And they wouldn't pitch it at, at, at MCA because it was too country. And it turns out the producer for the act I was trying to pitch it to was right across the street. Uh, and I walked over and gave it to the girl who happened to be the producer's wife. And she was aware of the song. And before I could get back across the street, they put it on hold. And that was my first major cut on a major artist per single group called The Whites. And uh, it, it did several things. It, it, it allowed me to believe in myself as a solo writer. And it also taught me not to trust one person to go get me some songs recorded. Right. So I could make, do it on my own. So I would say over 80% of my cuts I got by myself. That, me and God, I should have said so. No. Did you say the wife's like Ricky Skaggs' wife's band? Or is this yeah. an, another band? Yeah, Sharon and Cheryl and Buck White. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, I, I, you know, you just like very softly said it. And I said, he didn't say the whites like, <laughs> you know, Ricky Skaggs, you know, wife's a band, you know, it's a family band. Oh, wow. That's amazing. Way to go for your first cut, huh? Yeah, they were so great to me, too. I mean, uh, it was their first single off their last big record. And it was a huge deal for me. I mean, uh, everywhere I went, you know, it was a big deal. And then I had several solo cuts. Uh, my 
I wrote a song one night and pitched it to Dean Dillon on Atlantic, and he played it for the label. They loved it for a new artist, and they called me in and asked me to do some tweaking on it, and I refused to tweak it at all. And they went ahead and put it out. It was uh, Neil McCoy's first single. And uh, it, uh, you know, there again, I wrote it by myself. I pitched it myself. What song so was gave, that? What was his first single? I can't, I don't know what it was. It was called Hillbilly Blue. And they tried to get me to change the word hillbilly. Of course, yeah. Mm -hmm. And I, they said it seemed dated. I said, no, it's really, really current again. And they said, mm -hmm. and I'm making this stuff up to them. They said, well, how do you know? I said, well, everywhere I go, everybody's putting the word hillbilly in their songs. And, I think it's going to be really big on radio again. They said, when? I said, as soon as uh, this new guy cuts it and puts it on radio. So <laughs> they all laughed at me. But they did bring it out. It was Neil's first single. And, uh, you know, I would go on to, to write for a company called Merit Music. Within, by 86, I was at Merit Music. Another small company, but my education grew rapidly there. Um, a guy, uh, Norrell Wilson, ran the company. Norrell oh, discovered. Good he old. discovered Reba, John Anderson, John Connolly, mm -hmm. Keith Whitley, and Kenny Chesney, and, and Shania Twain. And he wrote the Grand Tour. And yeah. and within, within that little building was Mentor Williams, who wrote Drift Away. Uh, Buck Moore that wrote Paint Me in Birmingham, and a guy named Steve Cropper. So it was a, you know, it was an education, and and there again, an interesting blend of music. Cropper being from you know the Blues Brothers and Booker T and the MGs and Menor Williams writing Drift Away and then you know hardcore country writers in there too so uh, it was great and then in '88 was my biggest uh, uh, change I moved to Screen Gems Music and uh, we had some good writers over there and then Screen Gems bought uh, SKB Music which at the time was. Uh, their office was in the old Combine Music, which is where Christofferson and, and Cochran and all those guys started at. And uh, so we moved into that building. And my first day in that building, I went back into the lunchroom to check things out. And I walked into Guy Clark and Richard Lee. And wow. that's when it really got interesting. And, and Guy and I became really good friends, and Richard Lee and us, of course. And, uh, you know, just to be around the songwriter songwriters, I think, you can't go to college for that. You can't teach that. Uh, for whatever reason, they friended me and, and let me hang around. And I didn't even have to buy them cigarettes or anything. It was really interesting. So, Wow. Wow. I just can't imagine being around, you know, legends. Because everyone you mentioned, basically, I mean, they are legends in their own right, you know, um, especially in the, that area that, you know, that time frame that you're talking about, you know, the middle eighties, good Lord. You must have a lot of stories to tell. Yeah, you must well, have a lot of funny stories. I, for I you. tell people that um, my heroes became my friends, meaning artists and, uh, and songwriters like Hank, Hank Cochran, uh, Red Lane and, and Wayne Carson, Russell Smith, Dave Loggins. But at the same time, my friends became household names. I mean, one of my best friends was Kenny Chesney and, Garth Brooks was one of my best friends, and Blake Shelton, and uh, Colin Ray. Funny story, and Colin, I walked into EMI one day, and these two guys were on the couch, and I asked them how their day was going, and they said they are trying to get some songs pitched to them for this artist. And I said, well, what's your name? And his name is Bubba, and uh, his manager's name Steve. And they were there. I came back from lunch, and they were still sitting there. And I said, well, who are you meeting with? They said, we don't have a meeting. We're just going to sit here until somebody can play us some songs. So I took them out, and we rode around the countryside in my Jeep, and I played them songs. And they took a song of mine, and he got a deal on CBS, and he cut a song. And I had no idea that Bubba had changed his name to Colin, and Bubba became Colin Ray, and I had a song on a double platinum record without knowing I was on the record. So. Wow. Good gosh. And of course, Kenny, you know, Kenny was, and Kenny's only cut one of my songs and, and Garth mm -hmm. has never cut one of my songs, but we're, we're great friends. And, um, I've always been a fan of Garth's, you know, his magic. And, um, <clears throat> I always tell people, if you don't believe in yourself and if you dream small, you're going to achieve small hmm. because mm -hmm. God will give you whatever you want. You just have to ask for it. And then, and even what 
you ask for, he will bless you far beyond that if you allow him. So uh, you need to put that on a shirt. God will give you whatever you ask, you just, whatever you want. You just have to ask for it. Something that I think that's like such yeah. a cool. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> well, I think people are afraid to ask. They, they think they're not worthy or they, and then the hardest part is they don't understand the how or, or how, you know, how is it going to happen? I mean, I'm not a great singer. I'm not your typical looking country star. How am I going to become a household name? I used to always rib Kenny at the gym. I said, well, let's look at it realistically, Kenny. You're butt ugly. You can't <laughs> sing. And so, you know, but I believe in you, you know. And, of course, you know, he he, he did really well. So. <laughs> and Dark was selling cowboy boots when I met him. And we invited him to a show. It's all in my book, but... um. The show he came to, uh, he was sitting next to me when Tony Arada sang the dance for the first time. And right. Garth whispered that he'd like to record that song. And I thought, well, who cares? You sell cowboy boots for a living. Who cares? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, it's like that meme I've seen where it's a, a little kitten looking in a mirror and she sees a big lion, you know? <laughs> He's just the little kitten, but when she looks in the mirror, she sees a big lion. So I, I hear you. I hear what you're saying. Well, um, let me get out of your way and just ask me whatever you want, want to ask. Do you remember the first place you ever played in Nashville? <sighs> <laughs> well, well, maybe, okay, maybe not the first place, but what's like the funniest or weirdest thing that's happened to you at you know, someplace that you played. Well, we had this writer's fiasco. It was called a writer's fiasco at Douglas Corner. And we were the B team and the A team was at the Bluebird with Schlitz, Schuyler, Overstreet, and Noblock. And the four of them would play the Bluebird. And so how the four of us got together, I don't remember. There's so many different stories and entails and stuff. But um, we did whatever it took to have a different show. At the same time, the four of us were Scott Miller, who would go on to run Broken Bow, but he wrote things like, to think I used to worry about that for Delbert McClinton. And he and I had a big cut on Trace Atkins. And Tony Arada, who wrote Beyond the Dance, he wrote uh, Thank You, I'm Holding My Own, and other hits oh, for yeah. Clay Walker. Uh, mm-hmm. And Jimmy Stewart, who wrote Brotherly Love. And Jimmy also wrote uh, Little Less Talk, a lot more action. But long before all that success, we were four young writers finding our way at Douglas Corner. And we got to where we knew Mervyn at Douglas Corner would let us do whatever we wanted to do. So we invented a thing called uh, the, the first round took place. Uh, it, we were on stage with Ralph Murphy one night. We had a very limited crowd. So we unplugged, moved up to the bar and sat at the bar and played for them. The next week, Overstreet, Skyler, Noblock and, and Schlitz did the same thing at the Bluebird. And then they got the idea to, to create in the round at the Bluebird. So we started doing in the round at Douglas Corner, but the waitress got tired of bringing us beers. So we we brought in a bucket one day, a big galvanized bucket, and we filled it up with ice. So we started riders around the beer tub. (laughs) And and, uh, we just thought that was a convenient way to save a lot of trips to and from the bar. But we did so many crazy things. So I would say the craziest thing we ever did – one day before Tony and, and Scott had ever been to Douglas, Douglas Corner, they were heading over there and they had no money. And they found a shoe in the alley of Douglas Corner. A and, shoe. and they were stoned and went to the door and asked, and it was like a $5 cover. And they told the, the door guy all they had was a shoe. So he said, take it up to Mervyn at the bar. So they took the shoe to Mervyn at the bar Mervyn surmised it was an 11, size 11 shoe, so he gave him $11 worth of drinks. What? So $30 worth of drinks later, they had a bar tab. Oh my and goodness. so Mervyn would put the bar tab in that shoe. Oh, my God. And so fast forward two years later, we're doing really well. We're all getting cuts and stuff. And uh, Scott Miller calls me and says, we're having a benefit. I can't make this up. We're oh having a benefit. Goodness can you come play um, next Monday, next uh, Saturday, a month from now? Yeah. So the night of the show, uh, I look in the paper and it's like all these big writers, there, McAnally and Kevin Welsh and Emmy Lou's coming out and all these people are coming out. Yeah. It's called the, uh, uh, the, the Ben Owen 
benefit, no, no, tab Owen benefit, mm -hmm. tab Owen benefit. So uh, we get out there and we do this, and there's like we raised three, four thousand dollars. Oh my I'm god! Here, I'm on state, and I, you know, that's what I love about this state is that Tennessee is such a uh, giving state, and y'all come out to help this person who's had a hardship of some kind and stuff. And I had no idea what was going on, and finally we we're the last round of the night, and there's all these people out there. I mean, there's Harlan Howard, everybody's sitting there looking at us. Harlan Howard, wow. And I, I lean over to Tony Arad, and I said, this is incredible. Who is Tab Owen? <laughs> and, and Tony says, shut up. And I said, no, no, who's Tab Owen? And I'm on the microphone. And he puts his hand over my microphone. He said, Bernie, the bar tab that we've been <laughs> owning for two years. <laughs> I said, does anybody else know? He said, no, we'll get killed. Don't don't say anything else. And they wouldn't let me in on it because they knew that I wouldn't go along with it and stuff. But this is the greatest thing I think you could ever do, pull off the tab on benefit. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Nobody knew. I mean, I think oh Mervyn knew. The club owner knew. But there was nobody named Tab Owen getting all the money. We paid off our bar tab. Oh, my gosh. that That's like the most original, hilarious. <laughs> Funny, weird. <laughs> First time I played the Bluebird, um, Don Schlitz called me and uh, said, hey, man, could you open up for me next Thursday at the Bluebird? And I, man, yeah, that'd be great. Thank you, Don. And so I hung up and I was like, I'm so screwed. I have one cut and I have like two songs that are maybe good. So what am I going to do? So maybe I can just do three songs. And uh, so I get there in this big line to get in and longer than a normal line for Don Schlitz. I mean, wow. back then the Bluebird wasn't packed every night. Mm -hmm. And I'm walking by all these big riders, you know, Skip Ewing and Harlan Howard. And, yeah. and I go in and, and then I see that all the record label from CBS is there. You know, Rick Blackburn and all these people are there and, and all the big dogs that I barely even know. Wow. And uh, so... Don says, well, here's the deal, man. It's a debut record release party for this group called Sweethearts of the Rodeo. Oh. And you're, and you're going to open for me, and I'm going to open for them. Oh, wow. And, I mean, I sat up there on stage. It was before in the round. And I'm staring at the biggest people in the business, and I have three songs. So that was my introduction <laughs> to the Bluebird. <laughs> Welcome to Nashville. <laughs> <laughs> So I know you're doing a lot right now, um, especially you've had, you know, kind of some big success in Texas, but um, I know that you have a release coming up. I'd love to talk about that. Yeah, I mean, I, I try to stay stay busy with, with fresh stuff. I, I think my favorite quote as a songwriter, I asked Rodney Crowell, I asked him what his favorite all-time song was, and he said, the one I haven't written yet. So um, yeah, I think that's, you always have your favorites that you go back and say that's, you know, for whatever reason, it still has a place in your heart. But, um, <clears throat> you know, 2020 was an amazing year to me. I mean, people went through COVID, but Texas was a lot more open than most places. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. so, yeah. so I could play more. But mm -hmm. uh, I had the luxury of, of having sold my house, bought an amazing place out here in the Hill did Country. You, did you sell the log cabin? Yeah, and I bought another one in Texas. So. Oh uh, wow! Because I I was looking at pictures of that, and it was so beautiful. You know, you know I mean, it was my that was my second log home, and it was it was mm. a great, great place. It was actually in a subdivision, but it oh. butted up into the woods and and uh, and was very very private. Uh, mm. But uh, this house here is is beyond anything you can imagine. I mean, oh, wow. I'm on a hilltop, and I can see 20 miles in either direction. On a hilltop. Oh, wow. That must be impressive. Oh, my God. It is, it's just so... Peaceful. Oh, it is. It's all that. I mean, I, I don't ever get stressed out up here, except for so much to keep up with. But um, Wow, that's fantastic. So do you have a new release coming up, I think, yeah. maybe next month? Well, hopefully. Um, so I went back. There were two songs that had been gnawing on me that I never felt got a fair shake in the studio <clears throat> so i went back and recut two songs that were very close to me and then a lot of new stuff uh that i've been writing and uh my weekend at bernie's that i do where people pay me to write here at the house 
uh, we've always written amazing songs, and every once in a while we'll write one or two that actually are so good that I want to put them on a record. And there's three on this record, actually. And uh, every one of my records has got at least two or three on them, including some that have been big hits overseas and marginal hits elsewhere and stuff. But uh, there's just some special songs on this record. And the beauty of Texas is that you, it takes forever to get anywhere, you know. So just to drive to San Angelo is two and a half hours, and it's no highway. It's all two-lane blacktop. So oh. I, I get the chance to work on songs in my truck. <laughs> and have had lots of success with songs I've written in my truck, several, several, several cuts here in Texas and other places with songs. And so there are songs in this record that I wrote in my truck, uh, Ghosts and Angels, and one called Going Down to Cowtown, and one called, uh, one of my favorites is called The Friday Night Fort Worth Lonely Housewives Club. And it's hey. about <laughs> four, four women who get together Friday night to commiserate about how crappy their lives are. And Oh no! <laughs> and that, that brings me to, I think the 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 biggest hindrance to songwriters, as a rule, is subject matter. Hmm. They always want to write about the same thing, you know. And granted, you can't create a new subject matter, but you can write about it in a different way. Yeah, from but, a different perspective. That's what I always thought. Yeah, I mean. Uh, Songs like Broken Halo, House That Built Me, uh, Girl Going Nowhere, those songs are not your typical subject matter. No. Right. So when you start writing songs about things that you may not think that they're of interest to anybody, like Friday Night Fort Worth Lonely Housewives Club, um, it becomes of interest to somebody, you mm -hmm. know, and people go, oh, I can relate to that. And The House That Built Me, oh, I can relate to that. Versus mm -hmm. <clears throat> get your sweet ass up in my truck. And let's go. Yeah. I mean, that gets so old so quick. Right. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I mean, the repetitiveness of the last six, seven years on radio, uh, you know, it just makes you come up with a beer title and go, no, 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 no. And, and it doesn't matter how great the beer title is, you're going to go, no, 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 no. I'm not going to write that. You know, we don't need another damn beer song. Yeah, so, we don't uh, need it anymore. And some people do a fine job, you know, with that. I mean, you know, more power to them, but I'm with you. It's just kind of gets old after a while. <laughs> well, I mean, look at, look at the end of the year and look at the song of the year. And it's never, ever about painted on blue jeans and get your ass up in my truck. No, no. Mm -hmm. I heard a horror story yesterday. I heard that the CMT awards gave out an award to everybody. What? <laughs> but I was told, I haven't verified it yet, but I was told that artist of the year, artist of the year, CMT was given to six people. Oh my goodness. Really? Wow. They so everyone nominated basically. Yep. And so it's just like, you know, grade school now, there's no more blue ribbons. Everybody gets a ribbon, you know, and if that's the case, then you can just unplug CMT right now because who, what's the sense of competing if everybody's going to win? Right, exactly. Yeah. I mean, yeah. losing makes you a better performer and makes you, and there's politics involved. We all know that mm -hmm. stuff, but, but uh, you find ways to become better. I mean, Casey Musgraves does not swim in the same pool as everybody else. And so, mm -hmm. That, that makes her fresh, you know, so. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Texas is different. So this album has got a fair amount of Texas flavor to it. Um, but I'm, I'm real proud of it. It's, it's hopefully going to be out. There's a song on the record called Somebody's Praying. And it's, oh, it's the most powerful song I've ever written, I'm sure. So. Uh, really? Yeah. It's wow. Ritual. You let us hear it? You didn't send that one to me. So no, I will. <laughs> I'll send it over. So. Yeah, because the song we were going to play next is actually Ghosts and Angels, which I think is just such a beautiful song. I mean, oh, my gosh. When I was listening to it yesterday, I was like, oh, my gosh, the song is just so beautiful. I love the song. Um, we were going to play that one. Um, yeah. Sometimes a saint 
Sometimes a sinner Some days a church pew And some nights a bar And I've spilled whiskey On my Bible Cherubims and demons well, They're never far Ghosts and angels They're all around me They haunt my heart And they save my soul When I lay down They're right there with me Ghosts and angels Where they won't story behind that song i mean it seems like a uh to me it's like a narrative song i mean i mean i don't know uh it can possibly be about I, you know, I, mean, I think i think that people who the sadly some of these artist writers believe that they have to live what they write you know like hank why do you have to live out your mm-hmm. dreams and stuff mm-hmm. um and whitley did that and some other people mm-hmm. and it wasn't necessary to go down that road that hard and some people can deal with addiction better than others, but um, right. I've, I've had my share of, of whiskey nights and stuff. And, and uh, there's a line there. I've spilled whiskey on my Bible. That's a fact. I've done that. And, uh, you know, it doesn't make you uh, any lesser uh, in God's eyes. Of you know, course. And at, at the very least, uh, eventually you become broken, which is exactly where he wants you to be. That's so. Right. Uh, but, but ghosts and angels is just that we have ghosts, things that haunt us and bother us have happened. We've done guilt, whatever. And we have angels and, uh, 
guilt, of course, is not from God. That comes from the devil. That's so right. Good for it's you. A, constant, a constant battle between the two. And, you know, it's just Ghost and Angels is just that. It's just uh, <clears throat> there's a song on my two albums back called Whiskey and Water. And it's just that. It's it's do I want to get baptized in water or do I want to get back to the whiskey? And, uh, and Oh, yeah, I love that song, too. That, that's a really good song. Mm-hmm. It is a good song. I just got it recorded by a guy named Willie Nelson and Jamie Johnson. So Oh, never heard of him. Never okay. heard of him. I hope it so, does well. <laughs> bless your heart. <laughs> that, yeah, that's that's a really good song. Well, that's um, wasn't that a title track? I'm thinking. Yeah, very, very yeah, good. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah, Tommy Connors and Sparky McGuinn and I wrote that, and we've written some good songs. And uh, so that came, it came out of left field. McGuinn was producing a guy named John Daly, the golfer, and uh, they're making a movie about John Daly's life, and wow. they cut that song for the soundtrack. So, and then they brought Willie in and Jamie Johnson, and pretty cool. Wow. Wow. Well, most of your music, I would say, um, I mean, you're definitely what I would call, you know, uh, like a songwriter, songwriter, you know, um, and there's, there's a lot to be said about that. Uh, I think some people just, you know, write songs that are just fun and, and that type of thing, which is great. We need that too. Um, but you know, but I think that, you know, you, you go real deep with some of your songs, which, I think is amazing. And I always hear like that underpinning of like what I would call traditional country music. W- wouldn't you agree with me, Anna, for the most part? Yeah, I, I think the, the, the talent, the, the, the part that makes you a better artist, better songwriter is exposing your vulnerability to others. And when you can do that, I think that people can, can join in there with you. Um, um, that, that song of Ronnie Dunn, I'm getting better all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, there's, I'm sure a lot of people that went through breakups and stuff that can relate to that song. Uh, you know, and then there's like the new song on Lady A, I Need a Heartbreak. You know, I mean, I think it just hits people at the right time. Uh, fortunately for me, uh, Cadillac Time is one of those songs that, you know, 20, 30 years later, it's still resonating with people who, were raised that way or their grandpa was that way or their dad was that way. So, um, you know, you have to expose yourself sometimes. I mean, not in public, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what do you love about traditional country? Traditional country? Um, I think the roots, you know, uh, I've had a couple big bluegrass cuts <clears throat> and I've never really followed the history of bluegrass i've just been in love with it you know so bluegrass is obviously where country music started yeah on your the walk album was it the walk gosh you know i I need to look these things up before i blurt them out but i didn't you have an album called the walk was it it yeah the closest thing that i would call a christian record it was it was a an awareness record a a, an album to make you go "Mm," and uh, yeah, I had a bluegrass, couple of bluegrass things on there, but yeah, one's that's called. What was, mm-hmm. That's what I was about called, to say. I heard yeah. some bluegrass in that particular album. Yeah, my favorite on there is Dead Man Walking, and I wrote it with Irene Kelly, who's a big bluegrass artist. And it's up-tempo bluegrass about, you know, talks about the Valley of Bones and, and Lazarus and Jesus getting up and walking from the dead and, and uh, really cool stuff. Yeah, but, yeah. But, I, Traditional country music is just, I grew up in Michigan, so uh, my roots were, you know, Johnny Cash, Sammy Smith, Loretta Lynn, Merle Haggard, Mm -hmm. but at nighttime, it was my turn with my transistor radio, and it was Bob Seger, um, Marvin Gaye, you know, and uh, all that stuff, so it was, and I've always believed that there was a bridge between rock and roll and country music. I've always believed that. That's why uh, groups like Creedence Clearwater and that have been influenced on me because Buck Owens and the Buckaroos, they were the first country act to have twin telecasters on stage. Mm, And so country music and rock and roll were eventually destined to get together because guys like Conway Twitty started off in rock and roll. That's right. 
Mm -hmm. And I don't care what anyone says, but to me, Elvis was a country star. <laughs> I don't care. I know, you know, he's allegedly the first real rock and roll star, but I've always seen him as a, a country artist. And he cut some great records in Nashville. I mean, Jim Malloy cut some amazing records on him. Uh, in my book, uh, uh, Mac Davis told me the story behind In the, in the Ghetto. And, uh, you know, Elvis was going through a, a time of reinvention and he was looking for songs because he was mad because the Beatles were on top of the pop charts. Mm -hmm. So he wanted to come back. <clears throat> so uh, Max sent him three songs. The third one, I can't remember what it was, but on a reel to reel, he sent Don't Cry Daddy and In the Ghetto and one other song. And uh, obviously they did really well. And, and Elvis was a country artist. Uh, You're always on my mind. And, and, and T-R-O-B-L-E, I mean, country songs, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I I always you know saw him that way you know for you know for the most part. You mentioned Buck Owens, and there's a song on your last album, um, Good Lord <laughs> Greyhound album. It's what called What the Buck, <laughs> and that song kind of encapsulates, I think, how most of us feel about some of the music that we've heard um, here in the past uh, couple of years you know, on mainstream country radio. Uh, I'd love to know if there's a, a, you know, kind of a story behind that song. Well, I mean, I, I had the title and I wanted to write it with several people and we just never could gel on it. So I was driving from Michigan to Nashville one day and wrote it. And uh, uh, I called a buddy of mine who was a former member of Confederate Railroad, Cody McCarver. And I sang it to him over the phone, <clears throat> you in the truck, just what I, I, I memorized it. So uh, he called me the next day and asked me to send him lyrics. And I said, for what? He said, I cut it this morning on John Snyder. And uh, John, I think, is up to three or four million views on that version. So but, uh, uh, I love just, that. You know, it's a fun song. And when I do shows, people want to hear it, you know. And uh, uh, it's just every album I put out has to have the meat to it the serious enough stuff that really digs in. And then it also has to have the fun stuff. So there's there's two on this record, the Friday Night Fort Worth Club, and my favorite is called You Can't Fight Naked. And uh, <laughs> it just talked about when you get mad at each other, you just rip all your clothes off, pretty soon you're not sure what you're fighting about. And, exactly. And <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, my grandma always said that you never, you know, go to sleep mad at each other that that'll preserve your marriage, you know? So I, I think she might have something there. You know, I, I think that might be right. <laughs> well, my dad would always say, don't, you, he said, you, you shouldn't go to bed mad at each other, but if you do, make sure you lock up all the guns and knives first. You know, so. <laughs> well, that, yeah, that works too, absolutely. <laughs>
Someone came along and put a hip-hop groove right through it So tell me what the fuck happened to country music Buck was a friend of songwriters and, and mainly Harlan Howard, but his music was just fresh for, compared to, you know, all the, you think back in the sixties. Now think about this, talk about how the 2014, 15, 16 music was repetitive. One, so many of the big hits in the sixties and, and early seventies were covered repeatedly. The same uh-huh. song would be recorded repeatedly. I mean, you're the reason God, God made, made uh, uh, Oklahoma. Not, uh, no, mm-hmm. not that one. The uh, the uh, uh, you're the reason our kids are ugly. No, <laughs> I love that. But but the, uh, the uh, it wasn't God who made Honky Tonk Angel. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then that there was a female version that came out. But there were songs like Help Me Make It Through the Night that got recorded so many times, but and were singled by so many people. But back in the '60s, the theme was cheating. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, it was cheating, 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 cheating. You know, yeah. you know who's who's Julie and and I see the want to in your eyes and all these cheating mm-hmm. songs. You know, and and uh, you talk about subject matter being abused. I mean, that's all they did in the '60s. But you know, it was real life. You know, and and uh, I think it was a time when divorce was finally accepted in right. the country. People wrote more and more about it. I guess mm-hmm. so. Um, they're more honest about things, I, I would say. Yeah, and I, I mean, there's country songs, obviously, that'll be around for forever and, and hopefully get re-recorded like, like Tennessee Whiskey did. There's mm-hmm. some great songs out there, I think, that need to be revisited. So. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So you would say Buck Owens is one of your heroes? And who who yeah. else would you say? I mean, do you have like a short list or... It's a pretty short list. I mean, I had people that would come to Nashville to be writers there from LA and they'd say, I I don't, I can't get my head around country music brain. Well, what, what is it? And I'd say, it's real simple. Go listen to Grievous Angel from Graham Parsons and Buck Owens uh, at Carnegie Hall. And then if you can find it, find the Blue Ridge Rangers record. When the, and a lot of people won't know what the Blue Ridge Rangers record is, but it's John Fogarty from Creedence Clearwater did an entire album on country music and he did it so well, but he, he changed the feel of songs like Jambalaya and, and um, Lonesome Me and working on a building and stuff and um, just gave it that credence feel. But so he blended country music with, with pop rock music. And um, that's, I think we're 80% of our artists today are a, I tell people, you know, why is country music the way it is? Because Garth grew up listening to Kiss and Coldplay. And these new guys grew up listening to, you know, rappers. Tupac. You know? Yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, yeah, I mean when they discover Conway Twitty or they discover, right. you know, uh, Gary Stewart, and they're like, holy crap, look at this guy. They're, oh, wait, he's been dead for 40 years. I, I thought he was somebody new, you know? Right. And so um, they didn't grow up with that stuff because their dads didn't play that stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, so, Or their dads played Garth Brooks, and they didn't want to hear Garth Brooks, so they drifted over into hip-hop music. Or something. And, uh, so, yeah. Much like yeah. my dad would 
would play Johnny Cash, and I wanted to listen to, you know, Black Sabbath. So, right. Uh, you know, it's just we all have our own little um, things we listen to, and it, it influences us. And uh, as an early artist, I, I was an imitator. I mean, I, I could do John Denver and Croce better than anybody. So. Wow. John Denver. When I think of John Denver, I think of that video footage. I, I don't know if it was the ACM Awards where Charlie Rich <laughs> has to announce the artist who wins, I think, for Entertainer of the Year. And it was John Denver and he he like put a match to it, <laughs> burned the thing. Um, I re- that's like I remember seeing that footage on YouTube or something like that. It's like there was this bad taste or something that maybe John Denver shouldn't be winning that award. Well, there again, it was pop music was, was unfavorable. And now of course they've gone overboard in Nashville with trying to piece pop music. And they've done that for years. And it used to be a five, six year cycle, but this time the stain is, has, has deepened and lingered on country radio and, but when you go into the trenches in Nashville and go to the to the songwriter nights, you're going to hear a lot of '90s country. You're going to hear a lot of great songs. And uh, I'll take some Texas artists down there, and they're like, "Wow, why isn't this stuff on radio?" Right. And there's a thousand different reasons, but uh, the songs get out there. I think the good stuff finally finds its way home. So. Right, right. So you, okay, so this is great. You do sound hopeful. Other, you know, interviews we've had, you know, I mean, they'll say, no, you know, it's it's gone forever. You're never going to hear, you know, more traditional types of country music on the radio ever again. You know, it'll never be the 90s again. But I, I detect that you don't really feel that way. Well, I don't feel that way. I, I don't feel that, I, I mean, after a while, rebellion happens and people go, no, this is what I want to listen to. And then the powers that be go, Hey, we, we got to pay attention to this Chris Stapleton stuff. I mean, I had a major label call me one day and said, we want to sign you, sign you to the label. And uh, I said, you, you know, I don't have a 32 inch waist anymore. You know, and they were like, <laughs> yeah. And they were like, but you've always been traditional. You've always, you've never wavered and you're the real deal. And we don't have anybody here. We want to sign. We want to sign you. And, uh, you know, it, it just something I thought about, but it just, the, the, the monies and the politics and stuff, I just didn't go that route. And, and maybe someday I'll get on a big record label of some sort. But my, my goal in life for the rest of my musical career is to become, and this is just, I mean, beyond uh, boasting, is to be somewhere along the lines of the next Billy Joe, uh, Ray Wiley, Joe Ely were, I'm the guy that wrote the songs that some of these artists are singing and I can go out and make a nice living being the guy that wrote them and performing it in my way. So. Wow. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, that kind of ties in real well uh, to something we're t- going to talk about here in a little bit. You're a weekends at Bernie's, you, you know, being that mentor and kind of, um, you know, helping, you know, some of the artists that are, you know, wanting to, you know, set their, I guess, their tents, you know, <laughs> you know, and try to make it in the music business, which can be kind of hard. Um, but uh, you, Anna, wanted to ask Bernie about uh, his thoughts on traditional country. If you want to introduce someone to traditional country music, what song would you pick and why? Um, as an artist, I think artists are interpreters of, of music. They're also interpreters of life. And so, Whoever does that the best, I think, is, is, in my opinion, a better artist. And I, that, for me right now, would be Eric Church. I just think that he, he, he goes his own way. He's not hindered by uh, filters. And he writes about stuff that matters. And I've recently become a fan of Aaron Lewis's. I think he's doing the same thing. Uh, they're not household names. I think Eric is. But um, And people laugh at me because I mentioned Kenny Chesney, but if if you can find one bad song on Kenny Chesney's next last record, I will I will gladly sit down and talk to you about it because between Kenny and, and Buddy Cannon, they found incredible songs, and it's such a refreshing record to listen to. And the same goes with Eric Church. Uh, I think Eric cut like three records last year in South Carolina uh, of, of material, 
and 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 then the female artist and to me the female artist far above record write better songs uh, i can't wait to see carly pierce two three years from now uh i really believe in her uh the gabby girl i really like her stuff now, mm -hmm. you know and uh i think that uh there's there's girls that i see i hope hope they do well out there trying to find their way but uh Traditional, I mean, if you want to find a traditional singer, go listen to Tammy Wynette. Go listen to Trisha Yearwood. There's, Trisha Yearwood and, and Faith Hill are two of the most powerful singers you'll ever hear. Till you've seen Trisha Yearwood in person, you don't understand the power that girl has. Mm -hmm. I mean, she's amazing. Her version of Somewhere Over the Rainbow is bone chilling. You know, I mean, <clears throat> so one of the first things I learned from Dave Loggins who wrote Please Come to Boston, She's His Only Need, Rollin' 18-Wheeler, and, and stuff like that, um, was that we write songs hoping that singers will record them. And singers like to sing. They like to show off their vocal ability. So when you write a song, you, you've got to have that octave lift in the chorus, I believe. Uh, and you've got to give them some way to stretch out their vocals. Here's an interesting anecdote. Pull up any tom t hall record you can think of there is no chorus in almost all of tom t hall's records it's just a bunch of verses yes, <laughs> yes that's true it's oh amazing yeah so when i teach my songwriting class in my workshops i teach them there's no rules there's a song called maggie's dream from dave loggins that don williams recorded and it ends on the only bridge in the song so the bridge comes at the very end of the song uh it's just amazing so uh Singers sing, so writers need to write songs for singers. And and this is the, the, the my favorite quote to songwriters is that songs, great songs, are just conversations put to music. That's all they are. Wow. But do you think there's one song that encapsulates traditional country music? Like, you know, some people say, well, it's, you know, uh, He's Stopped Loving Her Today. Or they'll say it's a... Uh, you know, fight inside of me from real hair. I mean, I've heard so many different answers to that. Um, but in, do you personally think that there's this one song that really encapsulates like country music? Like if you had, you know, uh, someone that, you know, met you and said, you know what? I don't know a lot about country music. Can you recommend one song that I should listen to that'll really give me a good understanding of what country music is? You know, I, I don't think there's a, a defined answer to that because everybody has their own little things. And I've, I've, and I've met people from, I, I played New Guinea one time and was over there and, and these people were enthralled with Crystal Gale, young 20 year old kids, you know? And so, uh, then you go over to, to Galloway, Ireland mm -hmm. and all they want to hear is Dave Dudley. You know, right. yeah. And so, um, fortunately, there is no one song that defines country music because country music, in my opinion, is alive and well, and it will always have boundary stretching that goes on, but it will always come back to its roots. I really believe that. Yeah, I, I'm hopeful as well. I really do think that, and I think um, COVID nineteen, you know, maybe has kind of you know, put most people, I think, in a more reflective, you know, mode about, you know, what are we doing? You know, <laughs> how are we moving forward? And maybe the things that really matter, you know, I, I think that sometimes when, you know, you go through stuff like that, um, it, it can do that for you. I think it gave a lot of artists a chance to empty out their closet full of junk you know, and go, well, I was going to put this on the next record. I was going to put this on the next record, <clears throat> but you know what? It's, it's just repetitive. It's not, I am not breaking new ground and, and, and real artists are always trying to find new ground and new, new expressions of their, their music. Uh, um, if, if this record I'm putting out in November sounded like Greyhound, I wouldn't put it out. Right. <clears throat> I, I do cut at the same studio. I do use a lot of the same musicians. But uh, I like to experiment, and, and I'll always have one or two tracks. I'll go back and go, I didn't get it right, and I'd like to take another crack at it. There's a song of mine called Addicted 
and there's a live version of it that will chill you to the bone, and then the studio version doesn't do much for you. So um, I've, I'm always rethinking old songs, and I'm always working on new songs. Uh, and I have in my phone, I must have over 200 titles that are sitting there, and oh, another wow. 200 snippets of little pieces of music that I recorded in the truck. Um, but when the time, when I have the time to slow down and drive around and pull up something, go, wow, where'd that come from? <laughs> um, but this new album, I think that I'll send you two songs uh, that I didn't send you. One is uh, Somebody's Praying, and one is called She's Crazy About Me. And they're, She's Crazy About Me is about as poetic as I've ever been in a song. Um, I, I like when I can get very poetic and get away with it, so. Right, that's awesome. Somebody's crying Newborn baby on her chest Sixteen-year-old girl About scared half to death Somebody's walking Out on a lonely road tonight Rain falling all around but There ain't a car in sight And all I'm saying Is there's a real good Somebody's praying Somebody's giving Someone a second, second chance Cause he can't put that bottle down But how she loves a man Somebody's driving 18 wheels, 10 hours straight He's got a wife and three kids to feed Just can't stay awake All I'm saying Now there's a real good chance Somebody's praying God, I know that there are millions Asking for your grace And I've been there a thousand times over Somebody's grabbing a guitar out of a pickup truck And first day down on music road, hoping he's good enough Somebody's wrapping his arms around his kids and wife A storm blew their whole world away, but they made it out alive And all I'm saying, yeah, there's a real good Somebody's praying Somebody's holding The only hand they've ever loved They know that the time is near but Just can't give them up As the light is fading Somebody's praying 